But understand heaven in a very literal sense, space. We are in heaven now because the earth is a spaceship and heaven is space, the void. Welcome to Philosophical Entertainment, a podcast where if you're not philosophically entertained, our entertainment is only philosophical. My name is Matthew Mansfield, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Episode 1, Suicide, Kill or Be Killed. Our podcast adventure begins here in this coffee shop, and it does so for a reason. Um, the podcast panel isn't in here. Uh, we won't be having a discussion in this coffee shop. Here, I've created some space, like Alan Watts indicated during the intro, that heaven can't exist if it weren't for space. And we are traveling through space on a planet, on this giant spaceship. And if heaven is in space, and if we're in space, then we are in heaven. We are in space. And that's hard for a lot of people to grasp. And a lot of people have made Earth's heaven not so heavenly. So I've created my own heaven, here, this coffee shop, some space. And I needed some space to be safe to share with you some things. Um, I'm hosting this episode, and I'm doing so for a couple of reasons. The main one is that I'm motivated. And motivation means the desire to move away from discomfort. So I'm experiencing a great deal of discomfort, which is like a phase that happens in the emoting process. Emotions build up like inflammation and it eventually comes to a point where you have to make a decision to either release it or try and swallow it and make a bigger issue and when you do that it, it like creates this kind of like septic rot and you end up having to process the emotion some other way so I'm motivated to talk about suicide yeah and to host an episode an entire podcast episode about it I didn't know a lot about suicide when I was younger. I didn't know anything about capital punishment. I, I, I was just clueless. I didn't know racism was going on. I, I just didn't know anything. And in this state of not really knowing anything, which I can provide excuses for that, but nah, that'll be for another episode. For now, as it pertains to suicide, I was totally clueless. My older brother was following in my father's model because my older brother was the, my father's junior. So my dad's copy and paste was his everything. And my dad wanted him to become an Eagle Scout and be this perfect Mormon missionary and do this whole thing. And my brother was going through this process. Well, as he became a Boy Scout, he went on this two-week-long Boy Scout camp trip. And when he came back, he shares with me, his kid brother, the kid who looks up to him. He is my hero. He's my everything. Uh, he's the buffer between the grown-ups and the kids. And he acts as our... Uh, the dad's viceroy, our uh, ambassador. <laughs> and so everything kind of goes through the junior in this way. And he comes back from scout camp and shares with me that he was raped and molested for two weeks by the Mormon bishopric. And it's like, okay, um, that's pretty devastating. But he realized that they helped him find his G-spot and he likes that better than this. Turns out he realizes he's gay. He's homosexual. He likes, he's attracted to men. Three years go by and he finally tells my father this. 
and my father went uh, went crazy, blaming everybody on the planet for how this could happen because it means his son's going to hell, and his son isn't his perfect copy paste. So it's just it crumbled my dad's entire world. My dad treated him like garbage. So. Long story short, yes, my brother hung himself. He committed suicide. And that is where my discomfort began. I wanted to find out about suicide. I wanted to learn as much as I could to see if there's a way that I could help somebody else's brother in that moment of crisis when he doesn't know where to go, he doesn't know who to turn to. I wanted to see if I could somehow become some kind of suicide hero so I became a 911 operator. And I did that for over a decade. And I was always looking at suicide from the outside, and I was being told what it was all about by people who didn't know what it was about. And my relationship with suicide became even more enhanced 24 years later when I myself found myself suicidal and came to the OS moment when I picked up my phone to call 911 and I realized, oh my God, I'm on the other side of the phone and I know what they're going to do to me and I know how they're going to treat me. That was five years ago. And so, yeah, I'm motivated to have this discussion. I'm motivated to have this podcast episode because it's so important that we create space where people who are suffering can go to and feel safe, safe to explore what's happening, safe to talk freely and to feel as though they have the credibility to do so. That's why I'm your host today for this episode. I want to talk about suicide. I want to really dive into it. And I want to talk about suicide from both sides of the phone. Because when I learned about suicide, I only learned about it from one side of the phone. I only learned about it from one perspective of people who didn't know how it worked. In this podcast, I'd like to make sure that we're covering as many viewpoints as possible. Because as I've shared with you, I have my own biases. I came into this thing from one particular perspective. But others are also coming at this thing differently. So I have to keep my mind open. And I'd like to invite you to do the same. Because with an open mind, your mind becomes pliant, able to be changed. For if we cannot change our own minds, we cannot change anything. Come now to our podcast panel. And let's have an open forum discussion about suicide. So thank you for joining us. This is our podcast panel, which consists of myself, Matthew Mansfield. And I'm Nicholas Rowe. It's it's interesting to me how we, we've invited so many people to talk with us, but almost the fact that nobody showed up tells a lot about what's going on. Yeah. It explains how taboo the material actually is. Yeah. Because everybody had opinions when I was talking with them in person, and they would share stuff when it felt quasi-confidential, 
Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, hey, why don't you sit in front of a microphone, state your name, and tell us your story? Then all of a sudden, nobody shows up. Nobody shows up. Yeah. Um, to me, when you came up with the subject and were talking to me about it, it was weird to me how many people had like somebody in their life that has committed suicide or whatever. Like, um, I I don't have anybody that I've been personally close to, but. The, the sheer number of people that were like, oh, yeah, no, like something, they have like a personal story about it, you know, it, it really changed the way I look at this in particular. And it's interesting how, like when you have friends at school that will, when you're with them, treat you one way, like tender and respectful. Mm-hmm. And then when they get in front of a crowd of other people, they change their tune completely. And they act as though, like, whatever's popular. And if you're not the popular one, if you're kind of the the nerdy theater kid, then they treat you like the outsider. And it's interesting with suicide that that's happening where, same story for me. When I talk with different people, they have all these stories about, oh, my aunt killed herself. My sister uh, killed herself. And yet, we, we... when we get them in front of a microphone, it is as if we're in school. And then they would be sitting in front of the popular kids. It's something wears on their mind in a way where when they feel that their circle of popular friends could hear what they said, they want to backtrack a lot of their, you know, more tender moments they shared with you personally. Yeah. I think it speaks a lot to like the societal pressure that's put on people. Um, The reason why people are going to be different in front of a crowd is because they have that pressure. When they're just talking to you, they don't have to worry about culture and how they were raised and what they should think but yeah that's kind of the reason for for doing this podcast right is to like deconstruct these like things so and i I found that um the different people that i that i spoke with no matter what their opinions of suicide was or is they don't want to to share it some of them it was for liability reasons feeling Mm -hmm. like they don't want to say something that might encourage somebody so there's like a fear yeah. there. So I, nobody wants to say that suicide is okay because the fear of that is that if somebody commits suicide, they'll be somehow liable for that. Right. Because I know that uh, one of the biggest predictors of people committing suicide is if suicides are like published in the news. It gets the idea in people's head. So we're definitely not here to say like, oh yeah, no, look, look at all these things and it's happening and it's fine and whatever. We're more interested in being able to talk about it because it's mental health is so stigmatized that people don't get help. And even if they try to get help, the services out there treat them a certain way. And so it's very scary, but it's such a huge problem that like the conversation needs to be had. Right. The idea that when you try to introduce prohibition for alcohol, the concept that if you walked into a bar or walked into a place and said, I would like some alcohol, you would immediately be suspect. And because it was illegal, that is not something you can say. And with suicide, you can't just walk into a bar and say, hey, I think I'm suicidal and have anybody react with kindness or with empathy or compassion. They would immediately treat you as though you had committed some kind of crime because it is literally societally prohibited. And 
so for me, the desire to record this was to make suicide a conversation. But if you go somewhere and you share that, you want you want it to be be received well. Like I've compared, so I've been suicidal in the past. Mm-hmm. There aren't any voices. There's no distinct audible sounds of somebody saying anything that I should hurt myself. It literally felt like diarrhea. And with diarrhea, nobody's saying anything to you. And like with hunger, nobody's saying anything to you, but you have urges, you have sensations, and the body is communicating something to you. And it's strange, the thoughts that it encourages you to have. Like when you have explosive watery diarrhea, you're looking for bathrooms, and otherwise you wouldn't be. And you're looking to make sure that the line isn't too long or that you can make it to the bathroom in time if you start to feel that sudden urge and and suicide comes on that way where you have the body has these very very distinct and specific urges and everybody wants their life to have meaning Mm -hmm. and so when you feel the urge coming like you don't know if you can hold it till you get to the bathroom some people will want to make a big hoorah before they get in there and squirt everywhere and with with suicide it feels that same way so like you say people will be looking for an excuse to get into the newspaper because they're about to go out and their body's telling them that they're on their way out. And so in a last ditch effort, they just want to make their life matter in some way. So they just want to get it broadcast that they meant something. And so that's where that, that desire comes from because it's like, if I'm going to die from diarrhea in the next few minutes, I hope somebody holds this place up so I can get shot to death at this bank while I'm saving everyone. Then my name could get in the newspaper, but then I can still get rid of the diarrhea. So I solve everything and I'm also can kind of go out as a hero. And some people, unfortunately, when they're having all of these desires and sensations, it feels as though you've jumped out of an airplane and you can see the ground coming. Mm-hmm. And you have a very, very clear picture that you're not going to be able to hold this for very much longer. And when you don't have enough training or experience to understand what any of it means, yeah, you're going to start grabbing at straws. You're literally going to start grabbing at your chute. You want you want something. And that's where I think people come up with just bad ideas, bad scene work. Yeah. And then the government and stuff is not providing you with a parachute. It's more like they're, they put down a giant tarp and try to catch you. Yeah. Right. Well, then you have, um, so that would be more like a medical approach to suicide. But when you understand that if you're working your job and you've got everything's riding on you, maybe you're the breadwinner, you can't share this because they're going to take your rights away. Mm -hmm. And you won't be able to continue keeping up at this pace that you have to keep up at. And so there's no reprieve and you can't tell your employer what's going on without dealing with, you know, you drop that stone in the water at work and you're going to have to deal with the ripples in the water from that. Yeah. And people don't look at you as brave for sharing that you're experiencing that. They look at you as weak. Right. Yeah. Weak psychologically because you literally have your rights taken away from you. So you're not strong enough to see all the reasons to live which isn't true because you just have diarrhea. Just because you have diarrhea doesn't mean that you're a bad person. You are just experiencing a completely different set of sensations than other people. But it's, it's also, it it also brings out a sort of um, systems of thoughts, just as if when you're hungry, your appetite encourages you 
to think about different foods and you start thinking about the foods that you desire and you start in your mind even putting together menus of what you'd like to consume but it, it's all originating from a system of sensations that are coming and those sensations are without words just as with suicide there's no system of words that come from it but there's a very specific feeling that your end is coming and that's where people start giving away their personal effects and they because they feel it's coming and it's just a very specific feeling that's happening in their body. It is as if your body from the inside out is checking out. I've, I've seen some data from the people that they have been able to interview who have made suicide attempts about how long it went between them deciding they, they were going to do it to like when their attempt happened. And it's like minutes, right? Well, and there'd be underlying, you know, you'd have a, like a low-grade fever or you have like a low-grade depression. Right, for like the, a long time. Yes. Yes, that's true. And then there could be an acute instance where you experience either crisis or some kind of an emergent um, event. And then that acts as the catalyst, which confirms right, right. these feelings you've had for so long. And you say, that is true. I am worthless. I'm out. To use your analogy, it's, you know, you have tummy issues, but then... You're out somewhere, and now the need to use the restroom strikes. Exactly right. Yeah. Or you eat the certain meal that it just opens everything up, and then and then splash. Yeah. So I think that's what happens is where we we don't train ourselves to listen to our bodies, and we we push 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 push, and you're trying to keep up these this illusion to everybody that you're not feeling that way, even though you might be feeling that way. It's almost like everybody not eating enough food and everybody has to act like nobody's hungry. And you, if you say you're hungry, then what's the matter with you? We're all, we're all busy starving ourselves. So it's hard to feel in the background this appetite. Yeah. And to have, to be depleted essentially. You, you have a chemical imbalance somewhere. The body's not getting enough serotonin or dopamine or you're, you're imbalanced in some way. And it might be coming from, in my case, it was a depleted gut, but everybody else has their own reasons why the, the chemicals are imbalanced, you know, why some people get upset stomachs from lactose and others don't. So the diarrhea right. could, could come and manifest itself in, in various ways. But the, the underlying issue in the background is that if you have that low-grade appetite, you can't tell anybody about it. And there aren't a lot of outlets for people to discover that if I'm having these kind of down low feelings, how do I solve those myself? There's not like a do it yourself, get out of suicide and program. All, all that was just said is putting a cap on like, you know, we, we're, we're really interested in trying to provoke more of a societal discussion about how do we handle this? Because it's like a real thing that's happening to people. That is very accurate. It should be more of a conversation. And two, if you're experiencing, so when I was experiencing suicide, I started trying to analyze why it was taboo. And my journey led me to a bunch of facts. Um, and because of my Mormon upbringing, I had a certain, uh, a certain set of taboos with mm -hmm. suicide. And that's where I had shared with you that I discovered that it was um, more about more considered to be about selfishness because Christianity is founded in the concept of suffering. And 
so what if you have diarrhea or so what if you have suicidal thoughts? Yeah, life is tough. But if you don't suffer to the end, then you're going to go to hell. And so when somebody literally gives up before the finish line, they're essentially defying God, trying to take matters into their own hands, which ties into biblical concepts of that God, the creator, this old white guy with a beard in the sky, literally molded out of clay Adam's body, then breathed into the clay model, into his nostrils, the breath of life, Mm -hmm. and then took part of his rib and made a woman out of it. So he's literally, these are parts, these are components, and he's assembling them. So they are a machine of sorts to be obedient to the will of this old white guy. And so it was hard for me knowing that history that, that I wouldn't be alive without God. So God breathed it into me. And that's where everybody could become offended is, and how dare you try to pretend that you can control that breath that was breathed into you? Cause it's not your own. This isn't your own body. Yeah, for sure. I, we were in the United States and obviously it's very Christian here and it's a lot, it's very Christian in lots of parts of Europe too. Um, and just that underlying like culture influences the public policy and all that kind of stuff that goes into this. So I agree. Um, I'm very much like a hardcore determinist. I don't believe in free will in the same sense that I think a lot of religious people do. Your brain is like you and your the stimulus that happens to you, your brain is like making a decision about it. In a way, it kind of is like a machine. It just, it's biology and it's got an input and an output. And then it responds to function. Right. I see problems with suicide being more like there are people that are going to encounter this in their lives and we need to make sure that the right stimulus is available for them to be safe, basically. Exactly. I think that's almost my uh, approach to it as well, where I feel that even if you look at us as machines, say, I mean, we are emoting organic devices and Mm -hmm. we respond to stimuli and we emote in response to stimuli. And as part of that, we're just seeing life as pattern and we're moving left or right or forward and backward based upon whether or not we feel safe. Does this way feel safe? Does that way feel safe? And then we try to choose the safest route for us to preserve the machine, to preserve the the device. And I feel that when people start to receive certain signals from their device, from their self, if there was enough conversation about it, they wouldn't feel fear about those that sensory input that's occurring because of all of this collective cultural background that's influencing uh, them. They don't say how they're feeling because they don't feel safe to do so. Yeah, because if you tell someone that you're suicidal, they'll call 911 and the paramedics will come pick you up and drop you off at the hospital where they'll make you feel awful. <laughs> yeah, or the police will come out and shoot you. Or the police will come out and shoot you. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing that could happen to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's it's terrifying when you are experiencing something and you don't really understand, first of all, why you don't feel safe to talk about it. And I think that's where the philosophy of it falls in, where if you, know, if you f- really feel that, that you're committing murder, that doesn't make you feel safe anymore. It doesn't make you feel safe enough to even have a discussion about even the thoughts of diarrhea or the thoughts of suicide happening to you you're considering murder because of the way it's framed in, in our culture. And so that's hard when you start having these sensations and 
you're a murderer. So then you start separating yourself from everybody. So then there's this kind of psychological isolation that happens, which just perpetuates the issue. Like you're not getting the treatment you need. You're not actually fixing or repairing the body. So then you just kind of change the trajectory of your future leading to the ultimate end, unless you understand, okay, why is this so taboo to talk about? And then, you know, how can I repair this so that I feel safe again? And then get back to the, the function of what your device is designed for. We had notes to talk about how other religions consider suicide, but I don't think that that, that guest was here uh, to help us cover those yeah, topics. Uh, I, I did a little bit of reading. Um, it seems to be the case that certain, especially like the Eastern religions, have much more of a, you know, uh, assisted suicide for terminally ill people, which I know is a conversation that we have here in the West too. Um, I think Washington actually has a, a law where if you're terminally ill with certain, it's like very, very specific, um, you can terminate your life medically. But even then, that's like the most that anybody's willing to talk about this, right? It almost falls under capital concepts of capital punishment, where we're taking... We're, we're taking from God the right to terminate life. And that's, that is the whole argument with capital punishment mm -hmm. is, are we right for ending this person's life? Because we're, we're the clay models. It was breathed into us. And so for us to take it into our own hands is, is literally defying God's will. And that's where I dated a gal who was a hospice nurse. And they had patients that their skin's literally sliding off their body. They can't keep their skin on. And they're just, they're so old that the skin is, it's just, they're just melting and they're just in pain constantly. So they're just doping them up with morphine until they, until they, they just die, until the infection gets so bad, the body just surrenders to it. But we're essentially torturing so many people in hospice because if, if they could just press a button, they would relieve it right away. And we don't let them mm -hmm. because we can't. We can't philosophically rectify the disconnect between our culture as it pertains to Christianity and this old white guy with a beard and then what's happening. Yeah. I think one of the ideas that we wanted to talk about as well was the difference between suicidal ideations and thoughts of self-harm. Do you think they're all inclusive? I think they probably come from different places. My understanding of self-harm a lot of it has to do with like a lack of control over what you're like grabbing for something that you can do to be able to control what's happening and the one thing that you have that's kind of yours no matter what kind of a situation you might be in is like your body yeah i've heard that some children will pull their hair out um mm -hmm. uh, i know some people cut some people cut themselves yeah yeah a lot of them are in home situations that are not very good it's, it's kind of a symptom of there's something else going on that's like psychologically distressing them, right? Yes. Yeah, and I think self-harm, I guess, could almost be put on its own spectrum because it doesn't necessarily have to pertain to suicide itself. It does intersect at some points, I think, with suicide, with a track of suicide. But like you're saying, it could be just a, an anxiety disorder, a lack of control in their life and trying to control one thing. Mm-hmm. I know with suicide, um, during my experience, I had very specific moments where 
I felt as though if I harmed myself, it would put off the desire to end myself. Mm. And it was, and then it was interesting because when I first experienced it through my through my process of it at different phases, I actually like had flashbacks to 911 calls where I had different callers explain to me what they were experiencing. And I had no frame of reference for it then. But when it was happening to me, I realized like with my desire to harm myself, I felt like even if I just cut at myself a little bit, maybe that would put off. It's almost like when you have diarrhea, you think if I could just pucker a little bit harder, just a little bit, it's almost like you're punishing yourself a little bit, trying to hold it because you know you just should relieve it. But you think if I could just do just a little bit more and for some reason, there's just this desperate feeling that if you could just cut yourself or scratch at something hard enough, it would, you, you could contain it just a little bit longer. I mean, I didn't ever follow through with any self-harm acts because I think of, because I was able to flash back to my training, but it was, it was wild to experience it for the first time myself because it was so clear the path of relief and it was to, to hurt yourself. And it was just, it was a wild moment when I, <laughs> I was in the, anyway, I guess I could go into it. I was in the garage and I was uh, replacing the, the razor blade mm-hmm. on, a, on a box cutter. Okay. And the desire came over me that I should just cut myself. And then maybe that would be, maybe that would put off all of these suicide thoughts because they were, they were so prevalent. It was just like being starving. You just felt like you were hungry. And when the razor was there, I flashed back to an old 911 call and I thought, boy, that is a very real and specific message from the body. And it's almost overwhelming. You almost, it's like diarrhea. You don't know if you could, if, if you could stop yourself or if like when people have sex and then they come after later and they say, oh, one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. But at some point there was a gyration at every moment. So there's, you know. Was right. it free will or was it happening to you? And at some point when I reached this razor blade kind of moment, I, I, it almost felt like, uh oh, one thing might lead to another. And I, and there was just a very specific loss of control feeling where I felt like I was falling into an automated process like diarrhea when it's like, it's just happening. It's just happening. And at some point, do you control your sphincter or not? Mm-hmm. Like, are you going or not? And then, so that was an interesting, um, revelation for me to see where self-harm intersect with suicidal thoughts. Yeah. I think, cause there's a really big mind body connection too. So one way that a lot of people can process emotions is like by exercising or doing something with their body. Right. True. So in that way, what you're saying about your experience and how you felt some of that negative emotion that was leading to your, your like suicidal ideation uh, you could get relief by doing something physical because it's like creating like an outlet for you almost. That's, that's kind of how I'm piecing it together from what I heard you say. I think that's, yeah, it's almost as if it's just like when you're, when you're so hungry, you feel like you have to perform action to solve for it. Like I got to go get some food. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the other items we wanted to discuss was law enforcement training. Sure. So there is a belief in our society, unfortunately, instead of everybody being equal or equally uh, 
worthy in the sight of God. Everybody is equally worthless in the sight of God in law enforcement. According to the law, a police officer can lie to you if they suspect you of committing a crime. So they give themselves permission to be deceptive. All they have to do is consider everybody a suspect. Then they can lie to anybody and they can justify it in court. Oh, yeah. So if you're just a piece of garbage, if you're worthless, everybody's equally worthless, then they have the right to do whatever they want because they've given themselves certain graces to operate. As long as they right. think of you as a piece of garbage, then, they, then they're free. The government is giving you your rights, so they're the ones that have the power to mm -hmm. determine when you don't get your rights anymore. And they can only do that not if you're worthy. They can't think of everybody as wonderful. So they think of everybody as worthless and then, right. they, and then they can operate. And so that's, so that's the approach, the mindset, the culture of law enforcement looking at any citizen they contact that they're garbage from the start. And then that way they have the freedom to manipulate that piece of garbage mm -hmm. to get the job done. And so when a piece of garbage calls them and says they want to take away their, their own life, you're a piece of garbage. And now you're also sinning against, you know, yourself, God's law. You're a murderer. And so when they come out and they approach you in my training as a 911 operator, they literally taught us that when somebody calls 911 and they're suicidal, it's because they want to victimize one last person before they commit murder. And that was part of our training is to look at them as trying to victimize me. So then there was this attitude of how dare you try to victimize the government? So then you're even a piece of garbage even more because you're trying to, to jab and stab at somebody. So they don't look at you as somebody like that somebody they can, need. They don't look at that at all. Yeah. You're just, there's no compassion no empathy and there's there's certainly no relatable ground mm -hmm. they're looking at it as a hierarchy a power structure where they're at the top and you're calling out to the one on the top and then they are sitting in a seat of judgment toward you and they are very clear in communicating that with anybody that contacts them because they want to be able to say no and and have that no mean something but but that is that is why in law enforcement, anytime I would deal with a suicide call, it was always with the culture approach that this person is literally trying to victimize me. And so then I was offended that they were trying to hurt me. And so then I was projecting my own state of being offended at these, at these people. And I don't even realize, um, I didn't realize more of what was going on with how that culture even began to exist and, and truly why nobody even stops it. Um, right. Because it would be for the same reasons that nobody showed up for our podcast. <laughs> so I view science as a tool to help us rule things out. It's not really a thing that makes like positive claims um, it doesn't say it is the case that like gravity is a thing. It would say gravity is the best explanation for everything that we've measured. Um, and so 
I don't think anybody would really come in with a scientific framework and be like, we got to cut God out of everything. Um, in fact, most of science was developed by very religious people when it was in its kind of infancy in the Enlightenment era. But they did reach a point when they realized that God was a static figure. Because the question came up about how God ties into science. And science effectively eliminated God because they don't consider God. Science doesn't consider God. You're right. It's not part of like the axioms of science that God must exist. Correct. So that is different than the prevailing thoughts at the time. They, they didn't come in saying, well, a lot of them would say, I think at the time during the, like the enlightenment stuff, they, they would say, okay, gravity is a thing. Well, God must have set it up so that gravity is a thing. And in our sort of more modern, um, less religious framework, you know, somebody might come in and say, well, I don't need God to explain that. But, um, and that's where in essence we had to delete God, but you had to logically delete God. Yeah. You, you have to remove it from your thought process, I guess, because it, it would be a huge bias if you yes. said there, there's some supernatural force that's controlling things. You, you, when you're analyzing data and looking at stuff through that lens, you have to be as objective as possible. And we don't have like an explanation for God and we can't measure God and stuff. So in that sense, yeah, at some point you could say God isn't really considered when it comes to scientific questions, but I don't think that there was like a people to chat it out for God and they're angry at God. And so they made this system that took him out. Like, I think it was more of like, we've got this world around us. We're trying to understand it. And as we refined our understanding, we decided that the best way to, make more accurate predictions is to go with whatever we can measure basically empiricism which um i mean which says that science is a form of prophecy in that it is a prediction device yeah that the the moon will do this in so many days and that this will happen so the the concept of science is is rooted in fear because we want to, we want to discover what's happening, so it doesn't take us by surprise. So we can predict what's going to go on. I don't know if you go into a physics department at a university and say, "Hey, you're all only interested in this stuff because you're afraid." I think you'll get a lot of pushback to that. But, <laughs> but I mean, that's the discussion of philosophy. Is, I mean, are they afraid? And if they're not afraid, why worry about it? If you're not fearful about it, who cares? Oh, nature is a wonderful place. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens there. True. But at the same time, uh, where my fundamental understanding of science separating itself from God is based upon the idea that if it's everywhere and it's, and it's an inert, it's inactive, it's, God isn't doing anything, then let's just delete it. But the concept like, why do we have to define gender so much? Like, why does it matter if you're male, female, or XY, or, or I don't know, XE, or I don't know all of the the pronouns, but why do we have to have a pronoun for gender? And it's because if you can identify it, then you can control it. You can tell it where it has to go. You can only use this bathroom or that bathroom. And then government has a say now in your gender and they can control you. So everything is about this control. And it's all based on fear because if you have these nebulous genders and you can't just leave it alone, you got to keep poking the thing. You got to keep, cause you want to define it so that you can control it. 
People don't like to think that they there are elements out there out of their control. And if they can't control gender, and if they can't control childbirth, then they feel like they're driven crazy. And so it's this, this fear that change is happening. And that's why the preacher always has these, um, you know, these alarmist sermons. And they always start out with, uh, with the scare of change. And the minute they, it's like, that's how you knock on the door to get into the house is they alarm people that change is happening and that it's wicked because we need to make a stand because there has to be right. And it's this push to organize based off of fear. We have to build this wall right here. You're on that side of it. We're on this side of it. And so then it falls into this in-group, out-group idea. But it's all rooted in fear because you can't just let the genders go. You just can't let people be whatevers because the government can't control whatevers. They have to control specifics. And that's why when a crime, a new crime is introduced, they want to analyze it and then they want to write it all out so they can define it. And then so that they control it so that it doesn't happen again, because it was change. It was a new thing to them. And that surprised them. And because it surprised them, then they feel victimized. And in their collective response, they want to control that from happening again. So that if ever that comes up, they know exactly how to deal with you. And that makes them feel safe because they weren't feeling safe before because they were experiencing fear. And I think science does a lot of that. Like if there are great minerals and stuff out in, in, in the galaxy, just let them be in the galaxy. But we, we can't just do that. We can't just let things be. We have to get out there and control it and possess it and own it and predict its outcomes. Yeah, I, I, I guess I just personally see it more as like, because I am an engineer, um, so I've taken a bunch of science classes and stuff. There's like a joy to discovery and like that aha moment. And it, it like creates its own meaning and purpose almost of like figuring stuff out and understanding more about the world that I don't, I don't necessarily see it, especially personally, as like coming from a place of fear. It's just like, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. And we, we've got this method to figure out how it all works. And one, one big weakness of science is that it is super willing to change its paradigm if the correct evidence comes forward that requires that. And so a lot of times people will point to, well, science was wrong about that. Well, I think, you know, as we're talking about suicide, so science can say that, uh, that there are specific facts about suicide. They could look at suicide objectively. Mm-hmm. Regardless, the only outlets for people who are experiencing suicidal ideations aren't the scientists. Mm-hmm. And even though they might objectively view the symptoms and signs and chemical balances and all of the lab results of somebody who would be experiencing suicidal ideations. Again, the only outlet for somebody who's experiencing that is through the venue of the first responders, which creates kind of the issue of the culture, which goes back to the philosophy. So if you, if you have one sect that could successfully operate without the influence of this God, Mm -hmm. you still have all of these Christian soldiers as your law enforcement and as your 911 operators who aren't scientists, who only required a GED. And they are the ones helping you through your suicidal moment. Yeah. How do we get from 
the science which might recognize that there isn't a God, you're not a murderer, these are your lab results, you're low on serotonin, take this and you'll be okay. How do you get to that person through this societal screen of all of these other persons who are uneducated, unwilling to listen, coming at you as though you're a piece of garbage, and, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. I guess in the ideal world, the the people that are responding to these situations would be able to get people in front of counselors or people who are specialized to handle talking to these people, right? I almost wonder if it's not the, the way that the, the, the training and stuff for the responders almost doesn't matter as long as they can successfully get people into the right place at the end of it. And then fast forward to my first um, suicide call where the caller died. It was the district attorney's daughter, and he was anti-police, and he shredded any cop on the stand and got, got whatever he wanted and destroyed cops' careers, and he, he just got the job done and just hated cops. So his daughter <laughs> called in, and she had done this a bunch, a lot of, a lot of attempts. So everybody took this like uh, the boy who cries wolf. Very lackadaisical. Again, yep. Know. Very lackadaisical attitude. Oh, it's her again. They got to the house pretty quickly, but the doors were locked and she was in the kitchen and she had taken a whole bottle of pills and she was drinking, I want to say tequila or whiskey. I can't recall now. This was back in the 1997, 1998. And she, um, on the phone was I could, she was dying, like she was losing her speech and everything. And I had the lieutenant on this other phone. So I had two phones going and they were, so the patrol officer got out there. was not going to break the door down. Cause it's that guy. Cause it's that guy. Cause it's the DA's house mm-hmm. and he's going to end the cop's career if he breaks the door down and she's just in there laughing or something. Yeah. Um, because then they, they've damaged his house and it's done. So then he called a sergeant. Sergeant got out there. Sergeant wasn't going to break the door down. Sergeant called lieutenant. Lieutenant came from his house. Um, so it took time to respond. So the call went on like 47 minutes before she died. So then the lieutenant got out there. Lieutenant didn't want to break the door down. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was EMS that actually got out there and they broke they broke the door down. Okay. But it was too late by yeah. the time they got into her. But it, it, it turned into this giant political, nobody wanted to sacrifice their career for this girl who's cried wolf so many times. Um, and that was probably one of my most difficult calls that I think I'd ever taken. And right afterwards, I just had to pick up the next call and just keep going. But then like in my case, where they wouldn't break the door down because of liability, mm-hmm. you have this group of people who, who value you as worthless. How do you get them to find worth in somebody who's experiencing that when you, you have this overwhelming cultural influence that's coming in that is that is dominating the conversation so much that we can't even get anybody to come in and talk to us in our podcast panel. True. Yeah. And so even though science may be approaching it in the most pure light, unfortunately that light is lost somewhere and it gets to the point where people don't even want to discuss it. Yeah. And that's all the time we have for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal ideations, please seek professional help. 
Contact your doctor if you feel you have enough time. If you don't feel you have that much time, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Other options include 988 or 911. It's important to feel what your body is telling you. Remember, if you're not feeling, you're not healing.